0: over here by the piano if there's any kids who'd like to go to Children's Church. Luke chapter 5, verses 17 to 26. Let me read the text. One day as he was teaching... Pharisees and teachers of the law who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem were sitting there. And the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to save that which was lost. And Lord Jesus, we are lost, we are broken people, but we thank you that you came, Jesus, with the authority to forgive and the power to heal and that Your work is still going on in our lives, and that today, Lord, we we sense Your forgiveness, and we sense Your healing power, healing us of our sins, healing us of the old life, and bringing us more and more into the new life of the Spirit that You've given us. Lord Jesus, we thank You for this Word that we're about to study. We pray that Your Word would uh, be with us now in power, that that You would take this sermon that I'm about to deliver, which is really just a, a couple of fish and a few loaves of bread, and that You would somehow miraculously take it And use it to feed a multitude of your people, Lord. Because, Jesus, you are the true bread of heaven, and it's you alone who can give us the things that we need. Lord, we thank you for the other churches that are gathered on this snowy morning and are worshiping your name and that are studying your word and are proclaiming the Son, Jesus Christ. We pray that this morning you'd strengthen those churches, that you would uh, enlarge their uh, ministry and their impact all over the South Shore, so that everywhere on the South Shore the name of Jesus might grow in greater and greater fame and that the word of God might spread so be with us now as we take part in that. We pray this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, I remember the first time I ever uh, visited Washington, D.C. It was uh, memorable. It was uh, Thanksgiving of 1993. And it was a memorable uh, experience because, um, well, my dad was there at the time. He was working for the government. He is still working for the government. He did a stint in D.C., so we all kind of went there. And it was memorable for a number of reasons, but most of all, at least to me, is because my mother was in a wheelchair at the time. Uh, just prior to that, she had been walking through a store and caught her toe on a display case or something, and she went forward and her foot kind of stayed behind and, and all kinds of bad things happened to her ankle. So she was in a walking cast. But, you know, you cannot do... Washington, D.C. in a walking cast. I mean, it's just too much to see. So we had to have her in a wheelchair to take her around. And that was an interesting experience because I've never been uh, in a wheelchair. No one in my immediate family or even extended family, for that matter, has had to experience that. Uh, and it really is um, a, a pretty interesting perspective from which to view life. I mean, you, re- you can't help it. You just feel um, separated. You feel a little bit uh, alienated from the rest of life. And it's not because people are mean to you. It's not because you're throwing a pity party for yourself. It's just, you know, you come to the Lincoln Memorial with all of those steps, and you're sitting there in a wheelchair. I mean, you just have to have a feeling this was not built for me to go see. Or you go to the other end of the mall. You go to the Supreme Court building like we did, which is the symbol of justice for all Americans. And we pay for it with our tax dollars. I mean, and you can't even get on the steps of the Supreme Court building because you're in a wheelchair. So you can't even really help it, you just feel that way. Um, but the good thing is we live in America, which uh, it really is one of the good things about our country is it's a very handicap accessible country. I mean, Compared to other nations, compared to human history, this is a great place to be if that's the condition in which you find yourself. And so sure enough, we're sit- standing there in line uh, waiting to get into the Supreme Court building and take a tour, and uh, some Capitol Police come over, and they say, come this way, and they take the little rope off and go around the side, left side of the building, and there's a lift. My mom gets in it, and, you know, and there she goes, and then we're at the front of the line. So that was the good thing about it was uh, we got the front of a lot of lines that weekend. Today's story is about a handicapped person. It's about a paralytic, and as a paralytic, he experienced a separation from the center of community life. He he was on the fringe. But more than that, he was also, like all of us, a sinner. And so he experienced, like all of us, a separation from the heart of God's life. And this is a story about handicap access. It's about somebody on the outside who is crippled, who is uh, paralyzed, finding their way to the center where they've really never been before. So if you look at uh, verse 17, we'll just pick up the story. It says, One day as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law, who had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, were sitting there, and the power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. So Jesus is doing his usual ministry. He's teaching. He's healing. But now the word obviously has gotten out about him. People are coming from all over. The crowds are growing. And the religious leaders have gotten word of this guy. So they've come to check him out. The Pharisees are there. These are kind of a, a lay religious order that uh, sought to follow the law closely. And, and they had this oral tradition that they all obeyed a lot of different laws. And then they're also the teachers of the law. They're kind of like the um, seminary professors. And so anyway, basically the theology police had shown up. And they were there to investigate this guy's doctrine and his teachings to see if he was legit or not. So here you have Jesus, you have the theology police, you have all the, the people around pressing in. And into this scene comes our friend the paralytic. And if you look at verse 18, uh, it says some men came carrying a paralytic on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. So we don't know a lot about this paralytic. We don't know his name. We don't know how old he was. We don't know if he was a paraplegic or quadriplegic. Um, We don't know why he was paralyzed. We don't know if he was born that way or had some kind of horrible uh, farming accident or if he had some disease ravaged his body and left him unable to move. But we can be fairly certain that as a paralytic in that culture in that time, he would have found himself at the periphery of community life. Uh, Physically, he just, well, he was paralyzed. And, you know, they didn't have wheelchairs. And they didn't have... Elevators. They didn't have ramps and nice smooth sidewalks like we have. And so uh, if this guy wanted to get anywhere, he had to sort of wait for people to pick him up and haul him there. So this is never a guy who was going to be at the center of the the town village meetings, at the town gate. He was probably never going to be a person of influence. Uh, But not only was he sort of physically uh, disadvantaged, he was also, therefore, economically disadvantaged. Because remember, this is an agrarian culture. And, you know, you, you earn money based on manual labor. And if you can't do manual labor, there's really not a lot of places for you to function in in, in that kind of uh, society. So he was dependent upon, you know, just people's charity, whether it's like giving him money or friends taking them into the home and taking care of him. But w- whatever the case, I mean, this guy now has two strikes against him. He's physically can't really be a part of, of the community. He's economically there. And then I also believe there was a third strike, which was he, there was likely... A kind of socio-religious stigma attached to his condition. You you know, there's this idea floating around that that was kind of common then, which was that if you were blind or if you had leprosy or you were paralyzed or something, that it was possibly a punishment from God. And, you know, hey, people still (laughs) think that way sometimes today when things go wrong with God punishing me. And and so, you remember the story in John chapter 9 uh, where Jesus comes up and there's this blind guy, and the disciples say, Hey, Jesus, who sinned? Did that guy sin, or did his parents sin? Is that Why is he blind? And Jesus says, uh, Actually, it's C, neither. Uh, this guy was blind by God's will, so that God's glory could be displayed in this person's life. And then he goes on to heal the person, to show the glory of God. So, so this guy, you know, this person is, is definitely at the fringes of the life of the village. So when he comes up, as it says in verse 18, and there's a crowd so they can't even get into the house, uh, in in some ways I thought, you know, what a picture of his whole life. I mean, that moment is in some ways a symbol of everything he had known. There's something going on in the middle, and all of the religious elite, and then there's people around that, and then he's somewhere at the very fringe of the crowd, lying on a mat. You know, what's going on, guys? What's going on? Just wait, we're trying to find a way in. He's just kind of there. And it's like all societies. Every society it seems to be built with a series of concentric circles of influence and importance. It doesn't matter if it's high school or junior high, and there's some people in the middle, you know, the jocks and the, whatever, the preppy kids or whoever, and then, you know, the freaks and the geeks and all, all those people on the outsides. Or, or, or whether it's your office, and there's some people when they walk in the room, it's like, oh, oh there's so-and-so. Or, or maybe you're not that person. Maybe you're the stock person or maybe you're the, you know, the secretary or whatever. Wherever you find yourself in the, the food chain of your work, And every community just seems to have these concentric circles. And this guy was at the edge, perimeter, periphery of the concentric circles of his community. And that's where he had known his life ever since he was a paralytic. Until today. And now something was going to change. There was going to be a handicap access made for this guy from the fringe to come to the center. And we pick up the story here in verse 19... Just to read again, it says, When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. I mean, I I just think that's hilarious. I I mean, it's it's a little story all compressed together, right? You try to think about this thing actually taking place, it's just so comical. So first of all, he goes up on the roof. Now, you have to kind of get the houses in your mind of what they look like. You can't think cape or colonial. You You have to think shoebox. All right, it's a shoebox. Is the way they built their house. It was a little rectangle made of mud or maybe stone, and then there was a flat roof. And the roof was very much part of the house. In terms of, you know, there's usually stairs going up the side, and people did all kinds of things on their roofs. You know, they didn't have to worry about this stuff falling down out here. So it's not like you would build up and crash the roof. And there wasn't snow. And, and in fact, uh, they would go up there and they would dry food on the roof, and they would do laundry and hang it up on the roof, and they would. You know, whatever. It was just part of their house. And if it was hot in the summer, you'd go sleep on the roof. You know, people would, you know, hey, how you doing, you know, across the roof. So, you know, the rooftop was just, it was very much a social area. It was a part of your house. And the way it was built was basically a dirt ceiling. Um, they would put beams across the top of the house, cedar or pine. And then they would take brushes and thorn brushes and bushes, and they'd lay it on top of that. And then on top of that, they would make this really thick mixture of uh, mud and spits and of straw to thicken it up. And then it would harden, and so you'd have this kind of mud, dirt roof on top of this structure. So, so the idea is you could dig through this roof. Now it's interesting, it says right here in Luke that they let him down through the tiles, which is kind of interesting because uh, tiles was more how the Greeks and Romans built their houses. So it's possible that Luke is just... Because Luke is writing to a Greco-Roman audience. Maybe he's just kind of translating the, the imagery for the people. It's also possible the word for tile can be translated as clay. So maybe it's, it's the clay. But the point is, it's the kind of roof you can get through if you wanted to. You know, if you wanted to come through my roof of my house, you would need a saw. <laughs> it would be hard because I have asphalt shingles like you do. And I have plywood and there's big beams. But, you know, it's not, like, it's not that hard to get through that roof. You just need, you know, a little trowel, and you can just start digging through the roof. And so you got this scene. These guys are going to go through the roof. I mean, whose idea was this, really? I mean, you know, where did they come up with this idea? It's hilarious. It's very obvious that the people carrying the mat were men. Because this is a very male concept, This this solution. This just has the Y chromosome all over it, right? It's sort of big on spatial relationships, and it's sort of big on linear problem solving. It's really small on social sensitivity. So... And you just wonder, like, like, who came up with the idea and when did it happen? You know, it's like, what are we going to do? How are we going to get that guy up there? One guy says, yeah, I don't know about you boys. <laughs> and I'm fixing to dig me a hole in that roof. And we're just going to lower him down through there. What do you think, boys? <laughs> and, you know, one of the guys is like, well, uh, that's a great idea. And, you know, they <laughs> and there they go. And so, and now imagine the scene, you know, now put the camera inside the house, and here's Jesus teaching away, and you know, and all the, you know, the Pharisees are taking notes. Did he say that? You know, and you know, all this scrutiny is going on, there's all this stuff, and suddenly on the roof you kind of hear, you know, and it's getting louder, blunk, and then, you know, everyone's, you know, he's still teaching maybe, and people are starting to, you know, dust is kind of falling down, you know, what is, and then at some point there had to have been that first hole. Where where light finally cam, comes through, and I, I just imagine in my mind that's when the whole thing just erupts, and the the owner of the house is, whoa, you know he's flipping out, and the Pharisees are starting to you know be all indignant, and and as the hole gets bigger and as dirt falls and everyone there's this this total chaotic scene, but no one can do anything because everyone's trapped in the house, so it's just they're helpless and there's all this arm waving and screaming and you know cursing going on, everyone's just flipping out, and you know just my own imagination, but I always imagine Jesus. Just kind of sitting there very calmly, sort of smirking, you know, as all of this stuff is happening. And the hole gets bigger and bigger. And finally, it's large enough for the mat to come down. And it, we don't know if they did ropes or, yeah, you know, they might have just handed it down to some people. I mean, if the roofs weren't that high, probably, you know, six, seven feet high. So it might have been the kind of thing where some guys just lowered him and some other guys grabbed him or whatever. And, and then this mat comes down and, you know, you thought cell phones going off in the service was a distraction. I mean, you can just... Imagine this mat coming down. And now, you know, here's this scene. And it's this guy who his whole life has been at the fringe is now front and center of all public attention and he looks up and there's Jesus right there. And he suddenly sees I mean, him a poor guy, you know, so sort of like Hi everyone. <laughs> you feel know, bad for him in a way. Uh, and, and, and I, and th- the way I kind of visualize the scene, if I were to film this, would be kind of a, a dark, crowded room that's really stuffy and congested. And then coming down through the hole, like a big single shaft of light. And, and you know how, like, when there's a shaft of light in a dark room, you can see all the dust particles? So that's, I see that too. I, I see, like, the shaft of light, and I see the dust particles sort of settling around. And, and the light is shining right on Jesus in the paralytic. So even though they're in this crowded room, it's also kind of like they're in their own little private area and there's nobody else there. And now the room goes hush to hear what Jesus is going to say. How is he going to respond to this? And he says in verse 20, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, Your sins are forgiven. When Jesus saw their faith, now remember that little word, we're going to come back to that. He said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. What an interesting thing to say. It's not what I would have expected Jesus to say. I would have expected him maybe to say, Maybe chew the guy out. You ruined someone's roof. That's not the right way to behave. If you're going to come in the kingdom of God, you can't be breaking people's roofs. Um, m- maybe he would have said, "Listen, I uh, uh, see so you're paralyzed, and I obviously can heal you. But right now I'm in a sermon, and um, if you could wait till I maybe go back up through the hole, and I'll come see you after the service, and you know, and, and I'll talk to you then. But I got to finish this sermon I'm in." Um, Or maybe he would have just healed the guy. Maybe he would have said, be healed. That's perhaps what I expect as a reader. Because in verse 17, Luke primes the pump by saying, the power of the Lord is present for him to heal the sick. So Luke is kind of hinting that that's what's going to happen. So maybe as a reader, I'm expecting Jesus to say, get up and walk. But he doesn't say any of that. He says, friend, your sins are forgiven. Like, I didn't expect that. And you know, if, if I was in front of Jesus... What would I expect Jesus to say to me? Uh, You know, what need would I expect him to fulfill in my life? If you were in front of Jesus right now, what would you want to hear from him? Maybe you'd want to hear, friend, you will have a new, better, high-paying job. Or maybe you'd say, friend, you will get back together with your boyfriend. That's what we'd want to hear. Or, friend, you will have money to fix the transmission on your car. (laughs) Or maybe you will be healed. But the thing I wouldn't expect to hear and maybe wouldn't be looking for because of my cluelessness is that Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And yet that's the thing that we need more than anything else. Jesus says the most important thing to him. Because yes, Jesus came to open the eyes of the blind and cleanse the lepers and make the lame to walk. And he did those things. But more than all of that, he came ultimately To cleanse me from my sins. See, the reality is that all of us are spiritually handicapped. Every one of us, morally speaking, is a paralytic. In terms of my relationship to God, I am a helpless, crippled person. And and I can't do anything about it. That's where I am, morally and spiritually speaking. And, you know, we don't often think of ourselves that way, but that's how it is. Just as that paralytic was physically separated from the life of the community. So by virtue of my sin, by by virtue of the fact that my natural inclination is to do what Jeremy wants, Jeremy's way and Jeremy's time, that's sin. Because of that, I'm just as separated from God. And and I'm distanced from Him because of who I am as a sinful person. And like I said, we don't often think of ourselves that way. We don't often think of that as our greatest need. Um, I, uh, I... got hooked into a television show. I, I don't watch a lot of TV, but there's one show that my wife and I have sort of become addicted to. It's called Prison Break. Does anyone watch Prison Okay, right, we have a few. Okay, it, it's okay to admit. It's, um yeah. it is. I think the show is written by Christians. I, I suspect, given some of the themes and things I've seen in it, it's an interesting show about this guy who's trying to break his innocent brother out of prison. Um, but anyway, uh, the, the, in this story, there's this mob boss. He's kind of like a mob enforcer kind of guy, and he's in prison. And uh, he's just one of the guys who everyone is terrified of in prison. He calls all the shots, all the inmates fear him. And, and during the show, he, call, he orders a hit on somebody outside of the prison. And so one of his buddies goes and does this hit on some other guy. But the thing is, something goes wrong in the process, and, and a six-year-old kid gets killed in the process. And so the guy calls back and says, yeah, I did it, but by the way, something went really bad, and this child was killed in it. And... Uh, and for some reason, this hardened, ruthless, cold-blooded mobster is suddenly convicted by the fact that this child died. And and suddenly he has this really guilty conscience, almost neurotic, a neurotic guilty conscience about the fact that this person died. And in fact, he starts to hallucinate. And there's a stain on his wall. It's like kind of like a rust stain on his prison cell wall. But when he looks at it, no one else can see it, but when he looks at it, he sees the face of Jesus with a crown of thorns on his head. And he just... He's falling apart, so he calls the chaplain in, and you're not going to believe him. This is on Fox. It was just amazing. But he calls the chaplain in, and he's like, you know, why why is this happening to me? And the chaplain says, well, you know, sometimes when people need forgiveness for their sins, Jesus appears to them because you need to receive Jesus into your heart for the forgiveness of your sins. I mean, it's, it's on. New- I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. I'm running around, uh, so he's you know yelling at my wife. I can't believe this is on TV. But anyway. At that moment, when he says that in the story, then what happens is, and this was the interesting part, they show this quick montage of clips of all the different things that this guy has done that were bad in the show. And you're like, wow, this guy really was bad. I forgot about that in episode two and that. And just boom, 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 boom. And, and, and I thought, what would it be like if God were to suddenly put in front of my eyes a quick montage of the last three months of my life In all the things, in all the ways that I have lived as if Jeremy was the Almighty. In all the, you know, the the rude things that we have all said to others, the horrible things we've fought, the gossip we've spread behind closed doors to tear down the character and name of another person, you know, lies, uh, you know, whatever. Stealing, the party where he got trashed and then went to church the next day. Um, The one-night stand, the one-month stand, whatever. All the stuff in our lives. Maybe the past three months. Maybe, hey, maybe last week. Maybe just this morning, right? And those things came before me. And I suspect that if I were to be able to see my moral condition with a kind of 20-20 clarity, that I would want Jesus to say, Jeremy, your sins are forgiven. I wouldn't care about my transmission or anything else compared to that, and I would want to hear. I would long, I would crave for him to put his hand on me and say, "Your sins are forgiven." And so he says to that paralytic, "Your sins are forgiven." The most important thing. Of course, this does not sit well with the Pharisees. They knew he was bad, and they finally caught. Him. Verse twenty-one: The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, "Who is this fellow?" Who speaks blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The Pharisees are right about one thing. Uh, God alone can forgive sins. No pastor, no priest, no minister can absolve you of your sins. This is something that is, in biblical thought anyway, that is only the prerogative of God to be able to remove guilt between a human being and God. Uh, So they're right in that sense. Only God can forgive sins. And, And they see this is blasphemy. Here's a mere human being from their perspective forgiving sins. And therefore, he's taking a prerogative of God, he's acting like he's God. Who do he think he is? God? <laughs> yes! <laughs> That's right. And, and so we see another one of these glimpses here of Jesus acting in the place of God. Because he was. He was God with us. That's the miracle of, of the Jesus story. He didn't talk to him like, just like another religious teacher. He talked with authority. Your sins are forgiven. They're done. You're, you're set free. And so Jesus knows they're thinking this, and he shoots right back. Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Then he gives them this interesting one. Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Uh, In other words, Jesus is, um, you see the logic of it? Which is easier to say? And, And the answer is, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven, because there's no need to prove it. You can't prove it. You can't tell. You know, if, if I were to say, you know, your sins are forgiven, Anne, then how do we know if Anne's sins were forgiven? Well, you don't know. You can't see. It's not like suddenly a little halo goes boom over your head or something. But, but if Anne can't walk and I say get up and walk, now we can all look and see whether or not Anne gets up. So in that sense, it's much easier to say something that cannot be empirically verified than something that can be empirically verified. So what Jesus is proposing is a proof. Verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So, so the argument kind of goes like this. If I can do something that you can verify that only God can do, which is heal somebody, only God can do that, then you know that I also have the authority to do something that you cannot empirically verify, which is to forgive sins. So it's a proof of the fact that he really did forgive the sins. And so, verse 24, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, We have seen remarkable things today. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has the power to heal me of my moral corruption. Jesus has the authority to make me clean before God. Do you know who Jesus is? Jesus is the handicap access to God. Jesus is the ramp for paralyzed sinners like me to get to heaven. Jesus is the lift that takes me from earth to the divine realm where I can find fellowship and communion with my Creator. He's the, the ramp that God built for us to come to Him. It's through Christ. And so Jesus comes, and and yeah, we may be at the periphery, and you may say, man, not me, I am so far from God, I'm so... Look, there is a handicap access, even for the most uh, paralyzed of us, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. The only thing that we need, the only thing we have to bring to the table, the only thing that we are required in order to access this handicap access, is faith as it says back in verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith. I simply have to have faith. And faith, faith is, is empty hands. Faith is, is coming to God saying, I got nothing. I'm paralyzed. I can't do anything. But I have faith. I believe that you, Lord, can heal me and forgive me and cleanse my, my life. And so faith is, is kind of like the thing that's not a thing. It's, it's empty-handedness. It's total dependency on God and total undependency on who I am, recognizing that I can't. And that's all it takes. You know? You're know. you like, well, maybe, maybe I just need to come to church here a few more weeks, and maybe that'll cancel out some of the other weekends and the way I've spent them. And that's not how it works. You know, Well, maybe I'll get myself together a little bit more. And, and once I sort of get my finances under control and I, and I deal with this, this, and that, then I can come to God, because then I'll be a little... You know, it'll never happen. We simply have to come with the, the faith of a paralytic lying on the mat, like, I'm here. I have faith. You've got to do the rest, God. Recognizing even that that faith is a gift from Him and His grace in our lives. It is by faith that we are saved. So I don't know. Have you ever come to know Christ by faith? Um, maybe you haven't. and Maybe you're here and, and you like you know, coming to church now or you have some friends who've drugged you here or whatever. But I'm, have you personally come to know Christ as a Savior? Have you ever had an experience in your life where you're, so to speak, in the beam of light with just you and Jesus and you've felt Jesus say to your soul, your sins are forgiven? Have you ever known that? And if you haven't, then I'm going to suggest that you need to make it your new mission in life. To find Jesus. You know, climb the steps, get on the roof, dig a hole, whatever it takes, because anything else you're worried about, whether it's Christmas shopping or getting the fruitcake made or fixing the transmission on your car, it's so irrelevant compared to this great eternal issue of finding peace with God through faith in Jesus. And so go out tonight. You're going to put on a heavy coat and a hat and your wife's going to think you're crazy or whatever, but just go out and be like, i got to go for a walk. And just in your own way, cry out to the Lord and ask God to, to come into your life and to forgive you and just keep praying it and praying it until you have laid hold of the Savior and you've sensed that grace and that forgiveness in your life. But I think there's a word here too for those of us who are Christians because notice what it says in verse 20. It says, When he saw their faith, plural, And so I think there's an application there, too, for us, which is that it wasn't just the paralytic's faith that impressed Jesus or that that drew forth the response of healing from Jesus. It was also he noticed the faith of his friends. His friends had to carry him there. And I think part of, of the Christian life is carrying people to Jesus. We're picking people up and we're hauling them there. And you carry people in a lot of different ways. And I think the most important way we carry people is through prayer. is is we, most importantly, there's other ways, you can invite people to church and you can bring the gospel to them and all kinds of stuff. But most importantly, we we need to be praying for people. We need to just be, in that sense, carrying them. And you know, there's some of us here who who put down the mat, frankly. Who put it down a long time ago. And can God save so-and-so? Yeah, I'm sure in theory, he can. God can do anything. I believe that. But I'm not demonstrating any faith because I stopped carrying the person in prayer five years ago. Because I carried him for 15 years and frankly I got sick of it. And the more I prayed for them, the further they went away from the Lord, and so I've kind of given up, thank you. And someone else can carry them for a while. I'm tired of that one. And, you know, no. If I really believe that Jesus can heal, and I believe it more than just sort of like a little doctrinal statement, but I truly believe it, it's going to change my behavior, and I'm going to keep picking up that mat and carrying that person. So, so we've got to pray for those people that we'd otherwise be tempted to just throw up our hands and say, well, forget it, there's, there's no hope you ever hear the story of George Mueller and the friends that he prayed for? I think I've think i told this story several years ago once, but it bears repeating. George Mueller, famous Christian in the 19th century, started in an orphanage. He was a man of prayer. He just trusted God. He didn't get any, raise any funds for the orphanage. He just prayed. T- didn't tell anyone his needs. He just prayed that God would provide, and the, God provided for the orphanage for decades. But anyway, he, he had it on his heart to pray for five of his friends. He had five guys he knew who didn't know Jesus, so he started to pray for them. And within a short time after he started praying, every day one of the guys came to know the Lord. So he just kept praying and praying. Within ten years, number two and number three came to know the Lord. So he just kept praying and praying. And after 25 years, the fourth guy came to know the Lord. And so he prayed and prayed and prayed. And finally, after 52 years, George Mueller died. And a few months later, the fifth guy came to know the Lord. So Mueller didn't get to see the, the final inning. Well, maybe he did. I don't know what it's like in heaven. Who knows? But whatever. He he wasn't there. And after he died, the final guy came to the Lord. You just got to keep carrying so faithfully. Is there one person that you know that you need to just keep carrying in prayer? What would it be like if all of us as a church just picked one person we know who just is like hopeless, but we're like, I don't care. I don't care if this person just keeps going further from God. I'm just going to pray. Just like with the same kind of habitual way, I pray for my lunch and thank God for my food. I'm just going to pray for Joe or I'm going to pray for Sally or whoever it is. Until, I, until death do us part, until they get saved, I'm just going to pray. That's it. And just keep carrying them before God. Believing that Jesus can heal anybody and there's no person so far removed that through the Spirit's work they cannot enter that handicap access and come into the presence of our Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your words. I thank you for this story, Jesus. And this story just fills our hearts up with love and admiration and worship for you. We read what you were like. We read the way you tenderly cared for this paralytic. And it's just so beautiful, Jesus. We love you. We worship you. We're so glad that you're our Savior. And Lord, we want to just pray for anyone here who's never met you, that, Lord, you would reveal yourself to them so that they might become Christians, not because some church talked them into it or some pastor preached them into it. Help them to become Christians just because they finally have met Jesus as He is. And that like all of us, they would just be drawn inextricably into His presence. And Lord Jesus, I also pray for those of us who are Christians that You would help us to keep faithfully carrying those who for all intents and purposes seem hopeless. Lord, I I continue to pray for my friend David from high school who just has gone off the deep end So new age and far out, and when I talk to him, it's like talking to a space cadet. But, Lord, you can save him. And so, Lord, I pray that you would reach into his life and rescue him. Lord, make us a praying people. Make us a believing people. Give us the kind of foolish faith that George Mueller had to keep just hoping against hope and praying, believing in what you can do. Lord, thank you for this word. Strengthen us this week to be your faithful followers. In Jesus' name.